0: Let's pray together. Father, as always, we want to pause and recognize two main things. That you are holy and we need help. Part of the reason why we gather every week, God, is to be reminded of those two truths that you are God and we are not. But the most amazing thing about you, God, is you use your Godness, you use your holiness to make us holy. You delight in helping us. That's why you sent Jesus to save us, to sanctify us, to change us, transform us. And so God, as we gather today, that's what we want to happen. We want you to be glorified to you to be made much of. And we actually do that by asking you for help because you are glorified when we get help. And so God, as we open up your word now, we pray that you would help us. The spirit is here. He is our advantage. And Jesus said in John 16 that he is here to help us, to remind us the words that you said. And so, God, we ask the Spirit now to fill us, to help us to see and to hear and to know, ultimately, these truths that you have for us. Because, God, we desperately want what you pray for. As we look deeper into your prayer today, God, we pray that you would answer this prayer. And We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, we're in John chapter 17, and we've been in there for a couple weeks now, looking at the prayer of Jesus. And this is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus that we have in the Bible, and I think it's quite striking, as Pastor David talked about last week, how he prays. He first prayed for himself, and then he started praying for his disciples, and that's where we're at this week. He's continuing to pray For his disciples. And what's amazing is not just that Jesus prayed this way at the end of his life as he was about to go to the cross, but that he prayed this way every day of his life. In fact, he even told that to the disciples. I talk to God like this all the time, but I'm saying it out loud now for your benefit. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad that Peter, James, and John were there, and they were listening, and all the disciples, and and they wrote down what Jesus said so that we now have it, so that we can read it. Because as I told you several weeks ago, you know, Matthew chapter 6, we have the Lord's prayer. That was kind of the template that he gave us to pray. But this is actually the Lord praying. And one of the most amazing things is he was actually praying for us, And We've told you that in this section, he's praying for the current disciples that were disciples at that time, and then in the third section, he's going to be praying for the future disciples, which at that point in time was us because we were future, but now if we are a disciple, if you've trusted in Jesus, you follow Jesus, then this section actually more applies to you because you're now the current disciples, and then there are still future ones, and we'll get into that next week that we are praying for, that Jesus is praying for. And Pastor David rightly pointed out last week that his first part of his prayer for his disciples was to keep them. In fact, I'm gonna go back in to one verse, chapter 15, not chapter 15, verse 15 of chapter 17 and pick up as we go forward into our text for today, primarily, uh, I keep saying chapter. I've been off for a week, sorry. I'm getting back into it. But verse 16 through Nineteen, And we're gonna see the second part of what Jesus prays for. The first part, he said, keep them. And then you're gonna see the second one that he prays for this week. So let's jump in, John chapter 17, verse 15 and 16. There, I got it right that time. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's what Pastor David talked about last week, that you keep them. Verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I wanted to go back into verse 15, one, because it sets up this week as it fits together. Obviously, it's one prayer. But secondly, to point out something that I just thought was striking as I was reading this. And what I mean by that is this. As I was studying it this week, and this is one of the reasons why I love preaching because it forces me to study the Bible. And then things jump out at me, things that I see that I didn't see before. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And the thing that jumped out of me is as, as I was reading it this week is Jesus says, first off, what he doesn't ask for. Before he actually asks for something, he says what he's not asking for. And here was my thought. Why you do that, Jesus? I don't know if you read the Bible like that, but you should, right? You can ask questions of, why you do that? And what I mean by that is this. Why did he say he wasn't asking for it why did he just not ask for it? You see what I'm saying? He didn't tell us all the other things he wasn't asking for. He didn't say, Father, I'm asking for my last rites meal, right? He didn't say, Father, I'm, I'm not asking for this. I'm not asking for that. I'm not asking. He didn't go down the list of all the things he wasn't asking for. So why did he say this thing that he's not asking for? Why do you do that, Jesus. Well, obviously, we know Jesus is God. And so we know that if he's doing something, he's doing it purposefully, correct? These are not throwaway words here. So it's good and right to ask the question, okay, Jesus, why do you do this? And then I thought about this from a parenting perspective. I don't know if you're a parent or not. I know a lot of you are. Some of you are not. But when you become a parent, I'll talk more about this in just a second, you learn the power of what I'm just gonna call preemptive parenting. And what I mean by that is, you learn to answer questions before your kids ever ask them. And the reason why you do that is because you get tired of them asking the questions. And when they were younger, right, you could kind of preemptive parent in ways that were maybe questionable, and by that I mean you kind of said things that maybe weren't true, like, no, baby, McDonald's is closed today. right And when they're three they're like, "Oh, okay." Didn't know they closed on Tuesday afternoons, but sure. Right? And and the whole concept of it was, and I I had to learn how to do this, especially when my son was younger, because even in Texas we live far away from our family. We live like 8 hours away, and so when we would travel at the holidays, Jackson would always want to know where we were on the trip, right? And so here's what I started doing. I started making a list of all the big towns we would pass through, and Jackson would mark them off as we passed through them. Because he would ask, are we there yet? Oh my gosh, son, we just left 30 minutes ago. No. Right? So I learned how to preemptive parent because I knew he was going to ask the question. And so then, in essence, I'm saying, don't ask me. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think Jesus says out loud in the presence of his disciples to his father, what he's not asking for. And the reason why I think he says that is because he knows for thousands of years, for generations to come, everybody's going to ask that question. And what is the question? Get me out. Would you get me out of this? We ask this a lot of times if we're in a bad situation. God, would you get me out? Ultimately, we even ask this kind of, you know, big picture wise, like, Lord, would you go ahead and come on back? I don't know if you like paying attention to this down here, and I don't know if y'all are paying attention, but people have lost their ever loving minds, right? And when a meteor starts looking really appealing, (laughs) right, you're like, Lord, come get us out. And and the reason why I think Jesus says that is because he's saying, listen, you need to learn what I'm asking for and I'm not asking for for the father to take you out. Let's take the parenting analogy a little bit further. I don't know your parenting style. This isn't a message on parenting, but a, a pretty common style of punishment is timeout. You know, putting your children in timeout. And in essence, you're taking something away from them. You're making them sit silently, right? And the whole concept of timeout is there's a consequence. You took something from them and they have to sit there. And those of us who have had children or you had, you, you babysat other people's children, you understand the concept. When you put a child in timeout, if their entire time there, they keep asking to get out, what does that motivate you to do? They stay longer, right? If they keep asking, can I get out now? My mama used to say, you just got five minutes added on. Right? Here's what your children don't say, because if they did say it, you'd faint. They don't say, mama, daddy, you know what? I trust your judgment. <laughs> and I will stay here as long as you deem necessary for me to learn the lessons that I need to learn. (laughs) They don't say that, do they? No, because they're immature children. Now let's apply that to God. Maybe what we need to pray is not God take us out, but keep me in as long as you need me to stay in to learn what I need to learn. I think that's what Jesus says. I'm not asking for it to tell generations of disciples after him, so don't you ask for it. This is why when people want God to come back to save us from the tribulation, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad desire. All I'm saying is it kind of goes against the grain of everything that Jesus was teaching his disciples how to do. He says, I'm not praying for God to take you out. I'm praying for God to keep you in. And then I'm praying for a second thing while you're in. Let's look at that second thing. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So first he says, I'm not asking for you to take them out. But what I'm asking for, and, and, and the ask is at the beginning of verse 17, sanctify them. That's what I'm asking for. Last week, it was keep them. This week, it is sanctify them. That's the message of today's title, or t- title of today's, me- you know what I'm saying. Sanctify them. Well, that word sanctify obviously is a pretty churchy word. And it means, by definition, to be set apart. In fact, the Bible will use multiple English words. I should say our English translations of the Bible will use multiple English words to describe the same Greek word. The Greek word here for sanctify is the same word that we would translate elsewhere, holy. But when you use it like this, sanctify sounds better than holy Right, But that's what he's saying. Would you holify them? Later in verse 19, Jesus is gonna use the word consecrate. Same exact word. And by definition, sanctify, holy, consecrate all means one thing. It means to be set apart, to be different. And that's what the word holy means. See, we, we attach... Um, And I'm not saying this is necessarily bad or wrong, but I think it doesn't help us understand it. But when we talk about the word holy, we attach this real kind of religious connotation to it because the Bible says that God is holy. But the concept of being holy is not necessarily religious. We can talk about things that are set apart or differentiated in just normal kind of conversations. Let's think back just what happened a week ago in Thanksgiving. I don't know your Thanksgiving family tradition, but I always go back to, uh, you know, from Texas, but my dad's uh, father moved to South Arkansas during the oil boom of that time. And so my dad was actually born in South Arkansas. That's where my dad's primary part of the family lives. And so even though I'm from Texas, we go back to Arkansas and we celebrate Thanksgiving with my dad's part of the family. And we normally do it where we deer hunt. And so it's kind of like we celebrate Thanksgiving at the deer lease. And so when we eat, we're eating on paper plates with red Solo cups to the glory of God, right? And sometimes we'll even eat what we kill. We make it real biblical because God gave us dominion, right? But the utensils, that, and we use plastic forks and knives. I mean, if you're at a deer lease, it doesn't really makes sense to break out the fine china. And I'm using that as an example to say a red Solo cup or a paper plate isn't holy. And what I mean by that is it's not set apart. It's not special. It's common. Now, growing up, my mama had this thing we called a china cabinet. And it was always in our dining room and it was big, and in that, she had all these plates and all these dishes and all this nice, fine china. We didn't pack that up and take it to the dearlies with us because it was holy. It was set apart. Mama wouldn't like us, you know, cutting up deer steak on that. It was special, it was different. I remember when Lindsay and I were engaged and we did the whole wedding registry thing. And we went to this store called Dillard's. I don't know if we have them in. Do we still have that store? Okay, it shows you how much I shopped there. I don't even know. But according to her grandmother, who we called Nanny, we needed to go to Dillard's and make a registry to register for all this fine china and crystal. I just thought that was a girl's name. I didn't know it was a thing. And so we go and register for all this stuff. And I'm not joking, man. We re- I'm like, I am never going to use that. This dish and that dish, I'm like, I'm afraid to even get close to it and break it. And, and so we got all this china and we didn't really have room in our house. We didn't have a china cabinet. So I did what any good husband would do. We boxed it up and put it in the attic. And it had stayed there for pretty much our entire married life. And so the concept of holy or sanctified or consecrated just simply means set apart. It's different. It's special. So it's interesting that Jesus's main prayer, watch this, is not for God to take us out. In fact, Jesus says, I sent him in. His main prayer is, I sent them in, but make them different. Make them different. Sanctify them. Set them apart. I want them to go into the world, but be different from the world. There are common, ordinary things in the world, like paper plates and red Solo cups, But these are different. These are different. And the concept of holiness, we actually talked about this on our podcast this week. If you subscribe to that, if you don't, I would highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. We get to have more conversations kind of beyond just weekend gatherings. But the concept of holiness or differentness is actually what I would say God's defining characteristic. That's His defining characteristic. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of things that the Bible says God is, right? He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. But one of the ones that people love to talk about today, just because our culture has gone crazy or common, is people like to say, well, God is love. I'm not saying God is not love. He is. But we have one set of scriptures, two instances in 1 John chapter four where it says God is love. But we have over 400 instances in the entire Bible where it says God is holy. So which one of those do you think is more defining of him? Well, let me go a step further. I'm not trying to pit God's holiness over against his love or his justice or his mercy or his omnipresence. What I'm saying is, The defining characteristic of God is not love, it's not justice, it's not mercy, it's holiness. And what that means is God is altogether different. So check this. So his love is holy. His mercy is holy. His justice is holy. Because you understand that there's a love that's not holy, correct? There's a mercy that's not holy. There's a justice that's not holy. There's a spirit that's not holy. And then there's a spirit that is holy, and we call him what? That was a a softball, y'all. Yeah, holy spirit. But why do you think that God attached the word holy in front of spirit? Because there are spirits that are not holy. So there's only one spirit that is holy. He's set apart. He's different. So God's holiness I believe, is his defining characteristic. What makes God different is there's nobody like him. He's set apart. He's different. And here's what Jesus is saying. He wants holiness to be our defining characteristic too. He wants set-apartness, differentiatedness. I don't even know if that's a word, but it sounds good to be your defining characteristic. That's what he's praying for. And watch this. Notice he didn't pray for you to be sent because you is sent. Did you notice he says, it's in past tense. I have, it's actually in the perfect tense. I have sent them. You understand there are some things that you don't need to pray about. One of them is whether or not you should live sent. You should live life on mission. That's how we phrase it around here. You don't have to pray about that. If you pray, God, do you want me to live my life on mission today? God's like, I already told you to do that. Why are you asking me? That's like your kid going back to parenting. Mama, do you want me to clean my room today? Is that even a question, son? How do you want me to clean it? Holy. (laughs) Set apart. Set apart. Not like your other friends would. See what I'm saying? So the question is not if we are sent into the world, which again, it makes no sense that we would ask God to take us out. He's like, quit asking me to take you out. I sent you in. Why would I take you out when I sent you in? What you need to ask for is what Jesus asked for is to set you apart as you sit, set you apart as you are sent in. And here's the connection I hadn't seen before this week. Again, this is why I love preaching, because it forces me to study the Bible. I hadn't seen before the connection between sentness and sanctifyingness, I hadn't seen that connection before. And what I mean by that is this I knew God sent us into the world, and I knew God wanted me to be sanctified, to be made holy, to be set apart, to be different. I knew both of those things. I just hadn't connected those two things together. And what I mean by that is this the effectiveness of my sentness hinges upon my sanctifiedness. Let me say it again, and then I'll use different words to explain it. The effectiveness of my sentness hinges upon my sanctifiedness. Let me say it like this. I'm not gonna be very good at being sent if I'm not set apart. If I'm sent into the world and I act like everyone else in the world, I'm not gonna be very good at my mission as to which I was sent to the world. So let me use a couple different words to help us, words that may be a little bit more common to us. You know, we speak a lot, especially in Christian circles about the idea of calling. And I don't always like the way the word calling is used because kind of in more traditional circles, people talked about like pastors and priests and ministers being called, but that was like reserved for the special people, right? And, and then everybody else like, oh, you're a pastor or a lay person. I don't like that distinction because I don't think the Bible makes that distinction in terms of calling to ministry. In fact, Ephesians 4, Paul says, God did give pastors, shepherds, teachers, evangelists, but to equip the saints of God for the work of ministry. So we're all called to ministry. So what differentiates someone as far as calling is concerned is not like, I have a different calling than you have. We have the same calling, and that is to make disciples. The only differentiating thing is giftedness. He said he gave some to be pastors, evangelists, teachers. So there's giftings that are different, but we're all called. Let me say it to you like this. We're all sent. But that's not the point of today's message. The point of today's message is not the differentiations of the callings, but how calling connects to character. So let me give you my first point. I think this is, in essence, was what Jesus is saying. Your character can jeopardize your calling. Your character can jeopardize, jeopardize your calling. The word jeopardy just means risk. That's why I have a game called that name. So your calling or sentness Can be risked, gambled with by your character. In essence, what Jesus is saying when he says, sanctify them, is he's saying, God, give them the character to go with their calling. Give them the character to go with their calling. Make them the type of people, I would say, spiritual fruit. Grow the spiritual fruit in them. Grow the fruit of the Spirit in them so that it doesn't jeopardize their sentness. Because here's how this works. If I am sent to a people to tell them about the power of God to change their life, they're going to judge that power based upon how they see it manifested in my own life. Right? So if I'm telling them about the power of God to change them, they're going to say, well, that power must not be very strong because you ain't changed. You don't have the character that matches this gifting that you have. But let me say it in a more positive way, because my goal is not to be negative. My goal is to be helpful. So let me say the same point in a different way. Here on the screen. The power of your calling is in your character. Notice the words I chose. The power. The effectiveness. The power of your calling is actually in your character. Now, again, I know most of you here, maybe some, most of you here, though, have not been in vocational ministry like myself. And so therefore you think, well, yeah, you're called because you're a pastor. You went to school. You're still going to school. And yes, that is true. But I want you to understand something. What qualifies me to be a pastor is not my seminary degree. Not according to the Bible. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, I believe it is. What's amazing, if you look at those qualifications, only one qualification in that list has anything to do with gifting, and that is teaching. So I went to seminary to learn how to be a better teacher. That's why I went. If I was going to teach this book, I needed to understand this book. I needed to understand church history. I needed to understand how we got here, how this book came together, all the historical accuracies, all this other stuff. That's why I went to school, for my giftedness. But what qualifies me is not that. It's my character. What's interesting, when you look at the list for pastoral qualifications, and and it'll say elders in your Bible, but the way we interpret elders is pastors. Those are synonymous. Those are shepherds of the people. What's interesting, you look at that list and everything else refers to the moral quality of the person. Are they a drunkard? The husband of one wife? And we don't interpret that as you've only been married once. Some people do but literally translated, it is a one-woman kind of guy. He only has eyes for one woman. Gentle, not abusive, leads his own household well. And here's what's interesting. If you look at those moral qualities, do those feel like qualities of like Superman or super saints? No, they're pretty basic. Hey, don't get drunk, don't sleep around, and don't be rude. And I've said this before, it's like the Ten Commandments. People look at them as they're some Mount Everest of morality and don't hear, I'm not dogging them. What I'm saying is they're pretty baseline. And what I'm getting at here is Paul, when he was telling Timothy and others to institute elders or pastors in churches, he's saying, listen, they need to have a baseline, set-apart kind of morality, They need to be the people, listen, that not only can speak and defend the doctrine, but are actually worth following. I love how he says this. They lead their own households well. Because if they can't lead their own household, how can they lead the house of God? I remember 13 years ago, in fact, it was 13 years ago when I was offered the job. It was December 5th, tomorrow. 13 years ago when I accepted the position at Revolution Church. It's the same day that my daughter was born. And in that whole process, I came out to speak, and so they had to see, right, okay, can the dude actually do what he says? But then they also investigated my life, and one of the things that they did is they ran a credit check on me and a background check, because if I can't pass those things, what business do I got up in the house of God, right? But I remember they asked me, and it was almost like, not that they were ashamed, but it was like, hey, do you mind if we run your credit? And I, my response was, not only do I not mind, I think it would be malpractice if you didn't. Because if I have a horrible credit, what in the world business do I have doing the credit of the church? If I can't manage my own bank, if I can't manage my own house, how in the world can I manage this? It's like you banker filing for bankruptcy. Right? It's like your hairdresser not knowing how to cut hair. I mean, it's crazy. It's like taking marriage advice from someone who has a train wreck record of relationships, which might be your hairdresser or your baker. You see what I'm saying? What Jesus is praying for is God, give them the character that matches their calling. They are called to the world. They are sent into the world, but if they're not any different from the world, then they will not be effective in their calling. They will not be effective in their abilities. And so the message for us today is the prayer of Jesus for you to be set apart and sanctified, your primary prayer let me, let me say it to you like this. If you could ask the Lord one thing, would it be for him to make you holy? Because that's the one thing Jesus would ask for you. Make him holy. And see, John, who wrote this, was one of the three of the disciples. You say, well, maybe that's just what John heard. Okay, cool. Let's go look over what Peter said. Look at this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. I have it on the screen. You don't have to turn there. Just might wanna write it down as a reference. Here's what Peter says. As obedient children, interesting, parenting, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What I love about that line is the Bible assumes that your ignorance was former, not current. Notice he doesn't say your current ignorance. But don't sometimes you wonder if it's actually more current than it was former? I do. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm confirmed to the passion of my current ignorance. But that current may now be former just like two seconds ago, or maybe 20 years ago. But thank God it was former because now there's grace for today. It says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance how you were born into this world. You were born sinful. It's amazing how people, they, they um, justify actions based upon feelings that they were born with. But the Bible says, don't be conformed to those. Verse 15. But as he who, it's interesting that he uses this word, called you. As he who called you, commissioned you, sent you, is holy, and that's the same word as sanctified. As he who called you is sanctified, you also be sanctified, or you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, and he quotes the Old Testament, you shall be holy for I am holy. See, I could have said earlier, your conduct can jeopardize your calling. Because conduct simply flows from character. I think one of the great mistakes that people make when they apologize for doing something wrong, they say, Yeah, I did that, but that's not who I am. You realize that's a half hearted apology, right? It's like saying, I'm sorry you took it that way. Oh, so it's now my fault that I took it? Like that? I think it's your fault that you did it like that. And here's what I've realized. Half-hearted apologies sometimes come from, most times come from half-hearted Christians. Half-hearted people that aren't fully in tuned with how messed up they really are. See, we're not good people that occasionally do bad things. We're bad people who occasionally do good things and even those good things we want promotion for. Right? So, a better way to apologize is you know what? That is who I am, and I acted out of my true nature, but by the grace of God, I am asking Him to change me. See, that is an honest assessment that your conduct actually does flow from your character. Where else did the conduct come from? People are like, it was the devil. Okay, I'm not denying supernatural forces. I'm not. But what's interesting to me, when you read the scriptures, the Bible puts way more emphasis on you crucifying your flesh than it does casting out devils. Because here's what I know. You can't crucify a devil or a demon, and you can't cast out your flesh. You have to crucify your flesh. The Bible speaks of it like this. You have to put on Christ. What's interesting is that is the same word that is used over and over again for clothing. You gotta put something on. You gotta take something off. And this is why anybody speaking of marriage who has been or is married understands when you get asked the question of, does this dress make me look fat? You're in a very precarious situation. Because it's like, what do you mean by that? Do you look beautiful? Yes. Might you need a bigger size? Yes. See what I'm saying? But here's where I'm going with that. It's not wrong to ask the question. But you shouldn't ask the question if you don't want the truth. Because the truth, I heard one man say that's right. (laughs) 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 We do pastoral care and we have counselors, all right. (laughs) Because the truth is your friend, it's your friend. So let me apply this. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. i put on. You need to have friends in your life where you can ask this question too. Does that conduct make me look ugly? Does that action or that reaction make me look gross? See, I don't know if you realize this, but you can't see your own face. If I asked you to describe to me what your face looked like and you had never seen it in a mirror, you couldn't do it correctly because your eyes look this way. Your face is this way, right? So what I'm saying is your self-assessments are suspect, are subjective. You need friends in your life that will love you enough to tell you that character isn't matching your calling right now. That conduct isn't matching who you now are in Christ. I know that's who you were, but that's not now who you are. You've forgotten who you are and whose you are. See what I'm saying? Because self-awareness is not the fruit of yourself. Just like self-control is not the fruit of yourself, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Self-awareness has to come from the Spirit and others, where you ask them, tell me how I really look. See, Jesus was saying this to a group. Sanctify them, do you notice it's plural? Them, we need a group to help us. Peter was saying, he called you to be holy. So be holy, be set apart, be different. And building your character takes time. But I've told you this many, many times. Time doesn't heal all wounds. In fact, it can make some of them infected. It's doing the right thing over time. And the right thing is us praying like Jesus prayed, make us holy, make me different, set me apart, sanctify me, make me like you. That's why Jesus prayed for it. But there's one last key to this that I also didn't realize that Jesus points out. Let's go back to John chapter 17, verse 19. Jesus says this. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. See, what's interesting, he says here, again, the words sanctified and consecrated are the same. But he points out two things I want to point out here. He points out sanctified in truth. See, he said that earlier, sanctify them in truth. This is what I was just talking about. When I said truth is your friend. The truth is the word of God. That's what he says. Your word is truth. But we live in a day and age where we, what is truth? What's, what's true for you? Well, that doesn't work in real world. There is objective, absolute truths. Again, gravity is one of them. You step off something, you'll find out real fast. There are objective, hardwired things into the world. So we're sanctified In something, that's the truth. That's what I was saying. You need friends that can tell you the truth. But there's something else that Jesus says here. We're not just sanctified in something. We're sanctified for something. It's interesting. Jesus says, for their sake, I consecrate myself. Now, again, that word consecrate, same word. I holy find myself. Now, again, we know Jesus wasn't sinful. He never sinned. So, again, this is what I was saying. The concept of consecrating or holy or sanctified isn't just necessarily religious in the sense it just means different. So, Jesus started out in a state of sanctification. In fact, it says he was consecrated before the foundation of the world. Jesus was set apart by birth. He was set apart by birth because he didn't have a natural birth the way we have natural births. He had a supernatural birth where God was his father. But he did have to maintain his set apartness, his sanctifiedness. But I think we get one key here. He wasn't just doing it for his father, he was doing it for his disciples. He says, for their sake, I set myself apart. See, here's what we've got to understand. Our sanctification can actually set the stage for someone else's salvation. Our sanctification being set apart can actually lead to advantages for others. See, Jesus set himself apart for their sake, for our sake. And that is why he went to the cross. Yes, to honor his father, but yes, to help us. And here's how that applies to us. Church, one of the biggest reasons why Jesus prayed for us to be sanctified was for other people's sakes who might come to faith in Jesus through our being sent and sanctified. It's for their sake. Let me give you another family example. Two main things that have happened in my life that have made me more holy. One is when I got married. I've joked about this many times. We're from East Texas, and I have joked about how the Holy Spirit has an East Texas accent. Sounds a lot like Lindsay. Nothing has made me more holy than getting married because I had someone who lived with me all the time that could point them out. But I now had someone who, standing with the Lord was dependent upon my following the Lord. Pastor David talked last week about washing them in the water of the word. You know, husbands are spiritual leaders in their home. So what motivated me to grow in Christ was I had a wife who was looking to me and asking me, where is the Lord leading us? Well, I better ask him. The second thing that happened was when my son was born. I got married at 23. Jackson was born when I was 25. 25 and I started counseling at 25. And I don't mean that to be funny. I mean it to be serious because I realized after two years of marriage, again, my relationship with Lindsay, I had some junk I needed to work through. And if I didn't work through that junk, I was gonna multiply it into Jackson, my son. I'll never forget seeing Jackson born and bawling my eyes out, realizing, oh my gosh, I'm responsible for him. You sure y'all trust me? to take him home. I feel like I need to go through a class or something because I realized who I am, what I do will affect greatly who he is and what he does. We know from so many studies, the differentiating factor in the success of a child's life is the role of the father, unapologetically, not private school, not even church, the Father. So you wanna know why I take sanctifiedness serious now? For my son's sake, for my wife's sake. Let me give you a third one. Because the third thing that has had the biggest impact on my life is you. It's not just parenting Jackson and Natalie, it's pastoring you. You see, my character can jeopardize my calling. I feel like I'm called to pastor. But I can't pastor you very well if I'm not worth following as a person. So it's for your sake that I set myself apart. It's for my son's sake, my daughter's sake that I set myself apart. It's for my wife's sake, that I set myself apart. You see what I'm saying? You see what Jesus is saying? It's for their sake. And as I started thinking about that, again, this is how I just read the Bible and think it all kind of jumbles up together. I kept thinking of this phrase, as I, for their sake, for their sake, for Pete's sake. You ever heard that phrase before? And we use it, it's a colloquial phrase, and we use it like when we're exasperated or we're frustrated, we like, for Pete's sake. I was like, I wonder where the origination of that phrase came from. So I went into the Wayback Machine, called the internet, and looked it up. And here's what I was was floored by. That phrase came about in the early 1900s as a substitution for another phrase. And that other phrase was for God's sake or for Christ's sake. And that phrase in and of itself, was not blasphemous. Because it's okay to do things for God's sake. It's okay to do things for Jesus' sake. But we started using that because we like to invent new ways to sin, right? We started using that as a term that, that obviously could be taken out of context because we were frustrated, like, for God's sakes. So people substituted the word Pete instead. I kid you not. Why, Pete? Oh no! Here's the only guess: Peter. It wasn't the first pope, but he was the first among the apostles. So they're like, "Well, we got God, Jesus. We can't say let's say Peter." So the phrase came out for Pete's sake. Now, hear me. Obviously, you can still use that phrase in a blasphemous way, but don't, that's not what I'm saying. So please don't get confused with what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that. But I do think the phrase, don't take the Lord's name in vain, means way more than just that. It means don't treat it like it has no power in your life. Not just don't say that curse word. But I do like the phrase, for Pete's sake. Why? Why? Because Jesus said, it was for Pete's sake that I sanctify myself. Because if I don't set myself apart, Pete won't be saved. You see what I'm saying? So here's what I think Jesus is saying to us. In fact, it's my last point. For Pete's sake, sanctify them. And I hope you never forget this. For Pete's sake, sanctify them. That's what he's saying. Because he was about to be sanctified so that they could be saved, but he wanted them to be sanctified so that others could be saved. And that's what I'm saying to you. Now, you may not know someone named Pete, but you could separate, uh, you could put in another word. For me, I'll say, for Lindsay's sake, for Jackson's sake, for Natalie's sake, for Revolution Church's sake. And ultimately, what I would say, if I was praying this now for us, For the world's sake, sanctify them, God. You see what I'm saying? Because our calling will not be effective if our character doesn't line up with it. So think about this the one thing that Jesus prayed for should become the one thing that we pray for more than anything else. God, set us apart. Make me different. Make me holy. I want a holy kind of love. I want a holy kind of relationship. I want to handle my marriage in a holy way. I want to parent my kids in a holy way. I want to manage my money and my household in a holy way. You see what I'm saying? I want holiness to be my defining characteristic just like it is yours. And I want that for Pete's sake. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that Jesus set himself apart so that we could be saved. A lamb without blemish or spot had to be sacrificed because that was a picture of Jesus. He was a lamb without spot or blemish. He was sanctified. He was holy. And you could accept his sacrifice because he was perfect. And it was his perfect sacrifice that allowed us to be saved. And God, I know there's people here today that have not trusted in Jesus. They have not been set apart because they've never heard the words of Jesus that he did what he did for their sake so that they might know. And so God, I pray today that you would save them. No one looking around or talking here as we close, There's never come a point in time in your life where you have understood the truth that you did sin because that's who you are. And you do need to be saved, set apart. Well, that comes as you receive, by grace, through faith, the sacrifice of Jesus. So if you wanna be saved, you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud. But it goes like this. You can say, Father, thank you for loving me, that you sent Jesus to save me. I admit I'm a sinner, but you're a greater Savior. So take me, make me alive, make me new. I'm trusting in Jesus. No one looking around or talking here as we close, if you're in one of our physical locations and you just prayed that with me, would you just simply lift up your hand so we can see that? Canton, and Jasper. We got men and women gonna walk around, put a gift, put a Bible in your hand. When they do, you can put it down. If you're online, you can let our online hosts know as well. We'll follow up with you. But then, those of us who have trusted Christ, you don't need to get saved again, but you do need to be sanctified. Being saved happens once, being sanctified happens all the time. And being sanctified is saying, God, there's areas in my life where I'm not set apart, I'm just like the world. And my thoughts and my actions and my conduct. I talk like the world. I spin like the world. I drive like the world. I talk, cuss. I love like the world. And the good news is if you'll just be honest, God has grace. But He can't cover what you don't confess but if you confess it, he'll cover it. And so if the spirit is opening your eyes to something, some area that you need to be sanctified in, ask him, God, would you sanctify me in that? And then make that your prayer every day. God, that is what we pray for. We pray for what Jesus prayed for, that you would sanctify us for those that look to us for their sake. Those that you sent us to, our families, our workplaces, our communities. It's for their sakes, God. We have to set ourselves apart or else we won't be any different. We won't have anything to call them into. So God, empower us to live life on mission, but in a way that is holy, that is set apart, that is sanctified like Jesus. We ask your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, church.